Your turn, Patty. The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, we're going to talk to Pratik Patel. Dietitian, strength and conditioning coach to the stars. It's not what you know, it's who you know. That's right. And we know Pratik Patel. <laughs> and he knows people. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. I get really sad when you go on vacation, Michael. I don't like working when you're not here. No. Oh. That's odd, because I'm pretty grumpy. You should be sad when I am here. <laughs> Fair point. Hello! Hi, Michael Chapman. How are you today? I'm doing just fine, Patty Devers. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, but I will be crying under my desk most of next week. Why don't you take, you should take off when I'm off, and that way, because you don't do anything if you're just crying Crying under my desk. I know. It's, that's that. I mean, just... It's a good thought. Yeah. Where you or going? you could cry on company time. That's fine, too. I mean, it's not as if your direct supervisor listens to the show and oh, would know no. that you are not going to be working next week. Cause Sorry, you're... Jeff. I'll be working very hard. Anyway, this is a podcast. It's called The Lab Report. Hey, thanks for being here. Thank you. Yes, this is where we talk about things like specialty lab testing, functional medicine, integrative therapeutics, sports medicine, Apparently. how to maximize cool. these incredible humans' athleticism and feats of excellence is going to be part of it. But we'll get into that in just a minute. Patty, Tell them what they can do if they've like heard this show before. Well, if you fell upon this show by accident today and you like it, perhaps go to iTunes or Spotify and maybe do the likey, subscribey stuff. But if you're returning, we're so grateful for all of your support. So thank you. I don't think that can be overstated. I mean, if they actually listen to one of these and they're like, you know what? I'm going to listen to another one. <laughs> uh, that's incredible. That's amazing. Isn't that great? We're that's, so grateful. That's wild. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for that. Um, anyway. That's not enough, though. You need to go head on over and do the subscribey and the reviews. You need to give us those reviews if that's the way you feel about this show. But if you don't feel that way, or you do, you can send us an email at podcastgdx.net. Uh, that's our email address. You can give any sort of feedback. You can write a question of the day. We will answer it. Yes, we will. Patty actually answers all those emails. I so if you want to just bother <laughs> her on a regular basis, I love them. Then you just send a bunch of nonsense to podcastgdx.net. No. She's not going to be doing anything next week anyway. No, I love answering the emails. I love the feedback. I always share them with Michael and we chat it out. But on the flip side, if you're a consumer and you're interested in ordering Genova's testing, head on over to connect.gdx.net. There you can order test yourself or we'll connect you with a clinician to help guide your healthcare. That's sweet. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay. Without further ado. Today's big. Hey. Big. You know what? What? You're going to hear some names. Name dropping. You're going to hear some names where you're going to be like, what? Did he just say that? Wait, what? I, I, at least I. He, <laughs> the New York Giants. Let's just start there. <laughs> right. We have somebody who's like worked with making sure that some of the New York Giants throughout the years are competing at the highest level. We're talking like NFL athletes, professional athletes, elite athletes, and this is the guy who keeps them healthy, yeah. helps them to perform, yeah. helps to keep them uninjured yeah. and in the game. And we're so excited to speak to Pratik Patel today. No doubt. Um, and that's all. I don't want to waste any more time. So really, we're going for it. Yeah, for sure. So let's let's just. Bring him. Let's beam him on board. Patty, 
Finally, Michael, he's I'm, here. I, you know me. I have so many questions I, just because I am just all the news and tendons, and I've been wanting to do strength and conditioning myself. So this coming. is going to be about me, how I can bulk up. <laughs> anyway, Pratik Patel is a board-certified specialist in sports dietetics, certified strength and conditioning specialist, and a registered dietitian. Pratik spent several years working in the NFL with the New York Giants as the director of performance nutrition and as an assistant strength and conditioning coach. And prior to that, he held several nutrition positions working with athletes from the University of Oregon, Michigan State University, and Kansas State University. Pratik recently spent served as the director of human performance for Nick's Biosensors, an innovative company providing athletes, soldiers, and laborers with hydration data in real time to optimize safety and performance, which is that's pretty cool. Pretty awesome. Uh, currently, he was currently he's working as a health and performance coach, implementing the principles and methods he's learned and harnessed in elite sports for people in the real world, like me. Yeah. With that, <laughs> welcome <laughs> to the sorry. show, Pratik Patel. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, listening to that resume, it's clear you've had a front row seat to some world class class athletes right. for years. And so just tapping into that, what you've witnessed and what you've been around for most of your life, what factor, in your opinion, contributes most to an athlete going from great to elite? Like, is it nutrition? Is it mindset? Is it recovery? Is it sleep? Gut health? Like, what do you think is the be- biggest lever to pull there to become an elite athlete? I think really just having elite parents, to be oh, honest, wow. okay. that generally sets the stage. Okay. You know, there are so many things that you can control nowadays that as we've progressed to learn more about the body, you know, there's so many more advances and resources in health, nutrition, supplementation, strength and conditioning, data monitoring, mental health and cognitive function. Like all those things do play a big role with at least keeping athletes in the moment and keeping them as durable and as healthy as possible. But honestly, just from being in the trenches and seeing it with my own eyes, those that are just genetically blessed and automatically skilled, regardless of their work ethic, unfortunately true, they're the ones that can do things that I've never seen others do. Hmm. And it doesn't matter who their coach was, who trained them, you know, their nutritional habits. They were going to succeed up to a point where, you know, if they don't actually take care of themselves, then, yeah, they're going to be more at risk for an injury or adverse effects happening or just not being able to produce and accomplish their Hmm. specified demands or what does their job entail? What is their position? What do they need to do on this play based on this call and this coverage and this leverage, all that stuff. But everything that you had mentioned does play a huge role with just maintaining their health. And I'm a big advocate and proponent of, yeah, athletes that do play sports aren't always going to be as healthy as they want to be because playing sports year-round for years on end, decades, is not healthy. Mm. You know, the sport of football is not healthy. You're not going to have an athlete at that level of the NFL, maybe even college football, that is 100% healthy. It's a violent sport. It's a collision-based sport. It requires you to train at very high intensities on the field and compete on game days for three hours, and there's nothing healthy about that. But that doesn't mean that all the different things that, you know, myself and the other support staff members, the other coaches that we're in charge of mm-hmm. don't, doesn't provide a huge amount of value if it's implemented appropriately. And that's where the biggest differentiator between what happens in college and pro amongst teams and organizations, like how is everybody communicating this? How are we communicating it to the athletes? Because you can have all those fancy gadgets and all the good stuff. Sure. But if the athletes don't buy in, if your head coach doesn't really allow it, 
-hmm. to implement it and be that sounding board to support everybody else that's with these athletes day in and day out. Um, that just doesn't mean that it's going to be as effective as you think it could be. Interesting. Right. Yeah. There's so much to unpack there. I have I know. a lot of follow-up questions, but I think the first thing with the, the, that you said was the, basically the genetic lotto, right? Where like people are coming from elite athletes. And my first thought you nailed, you answered it was like, okay, well, I tend to think that's because they have access to it. They have access to really great coaches. They can spare no expense from a nutrition and, and all that sort of stuff. But you're saying, no, it's so much of it is actually just about the, the aspect of their, their genetics and how they're built and wired. Yeah, a lot of people say, well, you can't out-train a bad diet. And I'm like, I've had a front row seat for 12 years, 12 plus years, so I still do consulting on the side, mm -hmm. that there are a lot of athletes because of how good they are, they can get away with it. But then you have the others that aren't as genetically gifted. They don't have the same skill level. They just don't have the size and stature. So they have to pull those levers on everything that they can control just to be able to stay competitive and relevant in those sports. Yeah. But, but I was also thinking, Michael, as you just said that in follow-up to that critique where you won the genetic lotto, you come from elite parents, isn't some of that built in to watch their work ethic and, and to see how hard mm. they, they work in life? Do you think some of that kind of dribbles through to their children? I think so, because when you talk about who are the best athletes this day and age in, in their respective sports and what is it that they do to stay on top, mm -hmm. like just because you've got great genetics and you have gifts and talents doesn't mean you're going to stay in the league or stay relevant. We see this all the time where you have these first round draft picks or they did really well at the combine and they blew everybody out of the water with their athleticism mm -hmm. when they get to the league or, you know, the NBA, the NFL, whatever it is, they just fall through the cracks because somebody had put them up on a pedestal for so long, they were just better than everybody else. And then when the competition is very equal, they mm. kind of fall because they've never persevered through that adversity. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and the, you know, you talk about players like Pat Mahomes, like he's probably the best player in the NFL, uh, lineage of, of parents that had played sports. Um, you know, the ones that I had worked with, Eli Manning, mm -hmm. his dad was a great football player, his right. older brother, obviously Peyton, one of the best, uh, his brothers, very high-level football players. So he had now Eli isn't the most prototypical quarterback athleticism type, but he can sling the ball and he's very brilliant mm -hmm. and had that work ethic. I, I don't think I'd ever worked with anybody that was more professional or consistent than him. And then you go along the lines of you know an Odell Beckham or a Saquon Barkley, who are I've never seen anything like it just in terms of the way that they can move, the decisions they make on the fly, the body control, the strength, the speed. Um, again, parents that had a background in sports mm -hmm. and nurtured them and taught them like it's not just enough to show up and, you know, your parents played. It's you have to really put in the at work, the effort, the time to be able to be on top of your game. Right. That's awesome. Right. Yeah. I think that's a great point, too, as far as like not just the physicality, but then the mental game as far as right. how that's being entrained and even modeled from a young age. Well, the other thing, too. Um, you know, we talk about data and all the things that are available to players these days and getting buy-in from the coaching staff and everything else. When it comes to like laboratory testing, whether that's conventional labs or, or any type of wearable devices or things of like that, have you noticed there's, there's something that you regularly go to for that, that really takes things to the new level from an elite training perspective? Yeah, honestly, it's just learning more about each individual athlete and like where are they at? Like mm -hmm. One is you can do some genetic testing that's become more prevalent over the past few years. You have more companies that are really putting the time, effort, and resources to making sure that their genetic tests 
are valid, they're reliable, but they're also easy to understand. And I've done some where you get a report and it's 90 pages. Like one, the athlete is not going to go through that. Two, mm. I'm not going to go through 90 pages. <laughs> right. All these gene variants to all these SNPs. I'm like, look, I can't change all of this. The athlete will probably do one or two things. Sure. And I'm going to try to keep compliance on them and, and monitor that. Um, I do like doing the genetic testing because it just tells us like this is who you are and what you're predisposed to. It doesn't mean it's good or bad. It just gives us more of insight into who you are. Mm -hmm. So everybody likes to talk about, oh, I have these genetics, that genetics, but they don't necessarily know what that actually means. But then there's also the epigenetic factors that play a big role in terms of their success or not. You know, what is it that they're exposed to on a daily basis outside of training? You know, how well do they take care of themselves mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually? Are they fulfilling their purpose? All that stuff. I like doing deep dives into into different biomarkers, yeah. you know, not just your general CBC or Chem 10 panel that a doctor can do, mm -hmm. more along the lines of, okay, what are we learning about your status in terms of, you know, hormones, thyroid, blood glucose control, your immune function, inflammatory markers, markers of, you know, muscle metabolism and breakdown. And how does that correlate to how, what you're predisposed to and where are you at and where is the disconnect? And a lot of players, they aren't aware of these disconnects that can put them on a path if left untreated to potentially having an adverse effect or getting an injury or increasing their risk for injury. Because nowadays, it seems like everybody and their mom is getting an ACL, MCL, Achilles. Right, and right. I'm 37 going on 38. I was a very mediocre athlete. But even when I played uh, back in high school, even having soft tissue injuries or an ACL was really unheard of. Like it never really happened. Mm -hmm. We were playing multiple sports. It wasn't like the workloads are higher than they were back then. Mm -hmm. It's just now you have a lot more stressors that these athletes are going through on a day-to-day -day basis. They're not, you know, spending time outdoors in nature. They're stressed because they're always on their phone and the media is always on them and they don't have outlets to decompress, you know, and they just surround themselves with the wrong people. And on top of that, they're just not eating as well as they can. And they're maintaining high workload. So the body just continuously breaks down. Mm -hmm. So I like lurking internal and learning as much as I can about that. So that can guide nutrition supplementation recommendations, and what these recovery options might particularly be. A lot of teams have invested in external load monitoring. So mm -hmm. you know, how fast are they running? How many yards meters are they running? How, how much time are they spending high distance running how many d cells contacts all that stuff which is great but the individual response to the workloads are varied mm. you don't know how each person is is adapting and coping with that you could either be not putting enough volume to prep an athlete or putting too much and that's why i like you know doing heart rate hrv monitoring uh learning more about sleep habits just to raise awareness because again every athlete will tell you yeah i need to hydrate need to eat right need to sleep need to do x y and z but they're not doing it mm. so disconnect to why right. so when you can actually show them some objective information to combine it with the subjective it's like a, oh wow this makes sense like when i go drink and eat really late you know at midnight and stay up and only get four hours of sleep like my, my hrv tanks mm -hmm. but then when i do everything you tell me to do the next morning, it just bounces back up and I feel better. And it's like, well, yeah, I've been telling you this, but now we can <laughs> show you something because, you know, you wore an aura ring, you know, Apple Watch, Whoop, whatever it is that actually can show them this information now. So I think framing it that way is really important for the athlete, but not taking it and just being immersed in the data. Like I always like to say, 
use the data to inform you and ask questions and then guide recommendations as opposed to be driven by that data because there are going to be days where the recovery score is perfect and sleep was great and they're going to wake up and they're not going to have it yeah like, mm. it's a bad day and and the reverse is true too oh sleep score was bad recovery score was bad but i feel really good mm. so you, know, you never want to prevent them from actually being able to mentally push through those bad days and now there's more studies showing that heading into training and competition athletes that spend too much time looking at the data if they didn't sleep very well they had a poor recovery score they're already mentally going to be in a bad mm. spot which leads to poor performance as opposed to saying like okay I'm not where I need to be, but I know what I need to do right now to prepare myself to get ready for this match or this game. That's, I love it. That's so interesting. And you have such an awesome lens into a world of athleticism that that we don't, you know, almost mm -hmm. everyone doesn't see. And so the disconnect I find interesting, um, especially as you said, right at the very, very beginning, you're like this, you know, these people aren't healthy, like doing this type of training. This is not healthy. And so I just wonder, do the athletes that you work with, is that a, something you have to convince them of? Or do they kind of know that already? And, and how that translates to, to like, you know, just a regular CrossFitter or whatnot thinking, Hey, if I model myself after these elite, elite athletes, I'm going to be super fit and super healthy. And they, you know, they don't necessarily get that recovery part, I guess. Yeah, I think there's a big disconnect, too, in terms of what we consider health. And everybody has a different definition. So there's no one right or wrong answer to it. The way I look at it is all systems working appropriately. And when they're stressed, they can get back to uh, the appropriate levels that they need to be without too much intervention. Like you don't need medical intervention unless there's a serious injury, like a contact injury, which you can't do anything about. Mm -hmm. um, some people just think fitness is synonymous with health, which it isn't. Because a lot of these athletes, because of what they've done for so long, they can handle the physical demands of training, but it doesn't mean that they're healthy. Like they could have, they could be overweight or obese or just over what they should be for their playing position or what's ideal for their frame size and their genetics. Uh, they could have some dyslipidemia. They could have just elevated inflammatory markers. They could have low vitamin D. I mean, you can run through the whole gamut of a bunch of markers that could be out of whack that have stayed out of whack because they've never been addressed, but the fitness levels haven't suffered because again, they are physical specimens. They are unique. They are different than you and I, mm -hmm. they can handle that. And they have been able to handle that for a really long time. So a lot of athletes, it, it, it really depends on that particular athlete, but sometimes they skew fitness for health, but there are a handful that know, like, look, I know the sport I play is rigorous. It is brutal. And I'm not healthy right now, but I want to do as much as I can to be able to be very resilient and durable outside of what happens in the weight room, but just their body being able to handle everything that gets thrown their way. It, it's so Yeah. I mean, that's so profound and so true because Michael and I, we speak to doctors all the time and our team speaks to physicians and we look at laboratory tests and a lot of them are CrossFit athletes. Mm. And we see such subtle things like suppressed immune response, intestinal permeability, things that are setting you up. And these are supposed to be the healthy people. And we're like, oh, no, no, there's a lot to work on here. Please don't mistake this. So I think what you're saying is really profound. Mm. And I think what comes through here is that you've had this front row seat to lead athletes for all of these years. You also had some time working for Nick's Biosensors, which looked at hydration. Um, and hydration is something we haven't exactly hit straight on in this podcast, mm -hmm. but I think Pratik might be the perfect person in a very unique position here. So, okay, yeah, we all need to drink more hydration, blah, 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 <laughs> blah. We know it's imperative. But with athletes, you need to be hydrated during a workout, especially for endurance training and even crucial in recovery. But 
although this might seem intuitive, I'm going to ask this dumb question. Is thirst alone reliable? And, and what's the first things you see that start to falter in athletes when they become dehydrated? Yeah, great question. Um, it, from what the studies show, thirst and drinking ad libitum is not reliable enough. In, in a lot of different cases, when you're looking at endurance athletes or certain team sport athletes, you only replenish anywhere from 50% to 75% of the fluids that end up being lost. And when you're talking about really, really high sweat rates and, and pounds lost with a lot of these athletes, I think mm -hmm. the highest I'd ever worked with was an O-lineman who would lose 12 to 18 pounds per practice. And that's what? even factoring in the volume of fluid he would drink during. And like it was something I had never seen before Whoa. in my life. Luckily, <laughs> I'm just sitting here with my eyebrows. I know, like, right? Like 12 point 300 what? to 310 what? pounds. I mean, that's a significant portion yeah. of weight loss. So yeah. the goal with any athlete, especially endurance athletes, you try to mitigate and try not to go more than a 2% body water loss or body weight loss. And then you see performance decrements because it is such an increase on cardiovascular strain with people that are trying to maintain these workloads mm -hmm. for hours on end versus team sport athletes. It's not as important to stop at 2%, but what more of the studies are showing is you do start seeing loss of sport specific skills and cognitive function when you get to two to 4%. And football players, if you're talking about a team that's down south, you know, where it's hot and humid and they're heading out to training camp in July, August and competing at home, it, you can't not be outside practicing. You right. know, you mm -hmm. have to, you can't do it if you're a college team or potentially a professional team. So these players are sweating profusely during their warm-up during stretch, and they haven't even started mm. to, to practice yet. And by the end of it, it's luckily we're more aware of having appropriate breaks during training to say, hey, you know, during this period, everybody stop, you need, you need to hydrate. Teams are doing sweat testing to learn about sweat concentrations on top of just doing weigh-ins and weigh-outs to see like, or how much fluid are these players losing? It does become difficult to monitor their fluid intake during a training session because if you're talking about a college team, you have potentially 120 athletes on two to three fields. Like you don't have the volume of staff to be able to support that. It becomes way too difficult. I've tried. It doesn't work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but once players start to be dehydrated beyond that 2% range, we know that the body just has to work harder because you've lost plasma volume. And it wants to maintain that cardiac output. And the cardiac output needs are so much higher because there's increased oxygen demand to the muscles. The body temperature goes up. So the only way that we can thermoregulate from, from a sweat perspective is we have to sweat and sweat has to evaporate off the body. We do get a little bit of electrolyte resorption back through the skin because of sweat. But when the sweat rates are so high because it's hot, it's humid, or players are just operating at a very high intensity we don't get as much of that back into the body. So that's when you see sweat concentrations for some of these athletes becoming very high. And it's so individual. Like there's been plenty of published studies in a variety of different team sports that say you have varying sweat rates, even with athletes that are doing the same types of things. So not only within the team, but within position groups. Right. There's so many different factors that go into play. And you also have varying sweat concentrations between those athletes too. Right. Now the higher intensity, the, the hotter, the more humid it is, the more, the higher their sweat rates and their larger the electrolyte losses. Generally that sweat concentration is pretty steady, which is a nice thing to know. 
when the intensities are higher versus, um, you know, walk through practices, yeah, they sweat more and they lose more electrolytes and match type conditions elicit even higher sweat rates and electrolyte losses. If you do have an athlete that is on the court, on the field, or taking the majority of the snaps. So you have varying uh, ranges too. So I think the goal for what you know we were trying to do with Nick's integrating with outside of the endurance space and, and learning more about what teams can end up doing is you want to create a longitudinal sweat profile for your athletes. Now, obviously that's easier said than done because it takes hundreds of data points, but sure. for the most yeah. part, you know, pick and choose the sessions that you would like to to try to monitor and learn more about your athletes because you can't do weigh-ins and weigh-outs for 120 players every single practice. They can't wear sweat patches for every single practice. It's like, okay, what is ideal for representative conditions for when they're competing and when they're training? And learning more about their athletes, uh, it it's so unique because everybody's so different. Man, I've got so I've got three questions. Patty's gonna kill me. I have no, so many questions. Okay, so the, the one of them is you mentioned. You know, I'm wondering how much adaptability is there. Um, whether some a team or a person is practicing in a, a climate that is hot, humid, sweaty, does, can the body adapt over time with repeated exposure to that, or is that just pretty consistent? Whether you're practicing uh, long term in a hot environment versus a cold environment. Yeah, there is, uh, you know, the notion of heat acclimation or acclimatization, where if you spend about two weeks in in hotter temperatures, at least, and, and this comes into play when you have sports that kind of go year round, or they they practice and they compete in varying conditions. Like football is a perfect example. You start training camp in July, August, depending on if it's the NFL or if it's college football, and you finish in January, February. Mm-hmm. If your team makes the playoff or the college football playoff and you go deep in a run. So when I we were in Jersey with the Giants, it would be hot and humid in July sure. and August and September. And then you snap a finger and it's fall. It's cold. It's raining. It's windy. It's snowing. So you and you and you're traveling to other locations. So maybe, you know, Tampa Bay's on the schedule or Miami's on the schedule. You hear about it all the time. It's hot. It's humid out there. They're used to training out there. But if you're you know, September, October, November in New Jersey or Philadelphia or Kansas City, it's cold mm-hmm. and you don't have that advantage. So some of these teams that are training, although it sucks to have to deal with in the moment, they do have an advantage. So heat, heat acclimation, heat acclimatization is something that you try to have your athletes go through because then it just improves the cardiovascular output. It improves thermoregulation. If you can't you know, be outdoors. Some will go in their indoor and crank up the temperature and you're doing practices for, you know, one week, two weeks to try to mimic that even uh, warm or hot water immersion. A new, new published study came out mm-hmm. last year. Um, I posted something about it on social media is if you get, you know, 45 minutes after a training session to try to mimic those effects to at least acclimate yourself to be able to handle those higher, higher, hotter and higher temperatures. So the more fit an athlete is, the more exposures they get, the better they can give themselves the chance to thermoregulate because it's less of a strain on their cardiovascular system. Got it. How much of the slip in either physical or cognitive performance is related to the electrolytes as compared to the, just the fluid volume? Generally, the fluids are going to be somewhat intermixed. And, you know, we've actually tried to look at papers that have been published specifically on electrolytes, but you can't really have electrolyte loss without fluid loss. Right. 
So it's, it's difficult to say like once you lose, you know, a gram of sodium or two grams or whatever it is, plus chloride, because those are the major electrolytes that you end up losing with the, you know, a little bit of uh, potassium to go along with that because they're so synergistic. You can't sweat without losing electrolytes. It's just that concentration per person is going to be varying. It could be, you know, 20 milligrams per ounce. It could be some people we've tested like hundred milligrams per ounce, which is a fivefold difference. And some people just don't even know that. Well, I want to follow up on that mainly because I spent years in South Carolina working with a lot of the, as a doctor with the Marine recruits at Paris Island. And it's really, really hot. And notoriously every summer, We'd have many Marines coming in because you're right. They're sweating. They're losing electrolytes. They're losing sodium. They're pounding water. They would come into the hospital seizing because they become hyponatremic because this wasn't replaced. So where is that line with athletes where you're in Miami, you're training. How do you know how much sodium to give them back? How do you know how much potassium to give them back? Because you do have to give both, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the the only way to actually know is to try to, you know, um, there are varying companies that allow to test for electrolyte concentration. It started with just general patches on different places of the body to, to figure out, is it the same sweat rate at each uh, section or location? And we know that it's not, but there is some extrapolation and correlation to full body. So places like GSSI, other companies, um, you know, companies like Nix, they're figuring out, okay, if we know what the general algorithm or equation to extrapolate the full body is for the forearm versus bicep versus tricep versus the forehead versus the scap, the little back, the quad, the calf, mm -hmm. to find an ideal place to put it. And then we can measure the electrolyte concentration in the fluid and get somewhat of a whole body extrapolation. Uh, that's ideally the best way to do it. So like I said, if you gather appropriate data points on your athletes for representative conditions, you know, whether it's intensity and or temperature, then you can at least get more of an idea of during this session, this is what uh, a, a range of losses might be. Because as you said, I've worked with NFL players in the off-season training program in Jersey where, yeah, it is get a little bit warm and it is humid. They don't expect it. They don't think about it. And they say, yeah, I'm always hydrating. I'm drinking water. I'm drinking water. And then at the middle or tail end of a practice, they're going into a full body cramp and they're mm -hmm. seizing up. And it's like, Oh boy, all mm -hmm. they've done is they might have a very high electrolyte concentration loss and they were just sweating profusely. And the only thing that they were doing was replenishing fluids. Right. So mm -hmm. again, right. the, the risk of hyponatremia is potentially there. So that's where if you don't have the opportunity to test, you're kind of playing just a blanket strategy guessing game where it's like, look, we'll provide electrolyte boosting products. You can take them consistently throughout the day especially ideally before training, which can be used as a, a plasma volume enhancer. You can take these products during training on top of just the, the general sports drink, which has been formulated for them to consume during training. And then afterwards, you wanna, yeah, you definitely wanna salt your food, but you might not be able to get enough from the foods you eat alone. So you have to look at an electrolyte boosting supplement product to aid in that. Mm -hmm. Love it. Mm -hmm. Well, I, another question that relates to hydration, uh, both in elite athletes, but also the layperson alike, is uh, how it relates to caffeine. And so, what about is that is caffeine an issue? How much of an issue is caffeine for athletes and just most of us in general who maybe just doing a general pickup game at the Y? Yeah, caffeine isn't necessarily a, a huge deal. Actually, I just posted about this. Regular caffeine consumption does increase uh, utilization of sodium. But what the studies show is you can replenish that specifically through a normal diet. For most people, mm -hmm. it's not that big of an issue unless you're somebody that 
aims to restrict sodium, then it could potentially be a problem. So with, with caffeine, it's been one of the most studied supplements that, that and creatine, something I advocate for people that know that they get the positive benefit from it because you do have a small percentage of the population that are slow caffeine metabolizers. So instead of getting that cognitive boost and yeah, this feels great, I'm ready to go, they feel more anxious. You have like elevated BP and heart rate and they don't feel well and they sleep poorly even if they take it early in the morning. So for those people, you know, if, you, if you're unsure of your genetic SNP or if you have the gene variant, I think you kind of know if you respond positively to caffeine or not. Mm -hmm. But anywhere from three to six milligrams of caffeine per kg, which the sweet spot's like 100 to 200 of upwards of 300 milligrams prior to any type of activity 45 minutes before can provide uh basically just a, a positive effect on the central nervous system to delay fatigue, decrease rating of perceived exertion. Uh, it's been looked at in endurance athletes and, and strength and conditioning type athletes and power athletes to having a beneficial effect. So the, the correlation between caffeine and dehydration really isn't there. Mm. It doesn't, it does somewhat increase urine production, but overall in terms of body water losses, there really is no change if you're drinking your caffeine from a fluid so it's just like drinking water in terms of what the actual water losses and overall losses are. So that's something that people do get a little bit confused about or, oh, if you're in a hot environment, you can't have caffeine because it might dehydrate you more. That's actually not true. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And here's where we get to the place where Michael and I use this podcast for our own narcissistic benefits because we like to get, you know, some. I was going to make a joke about being in marching band and how I was passing out in the heat. <laughs> no. as, you know, it's similar. not the same, not the same. <laughs> but as it relates to strength and conditioning and building muscle and being an athlete, we're going to hit the topic of diet. And, and clearly athletes and, and high functioning athletes have a lot of different needs than you know, me or Michael or a CrossFitter on the weekends, you know, they have more protein needs and a lot of turnover amino acids. You know, it's different Michael Phelps versus Tom Brady. So how do you approach diet in some of these athletes that you work with? Where do you start? Yeah, it always starts with an assessment, honestly, just okay. like the, some of the things I mentioned before. I've got my own uh, assessment form for, for athletes and non-athletes. I want to put myself in their shoes and learn as much as I can because it's not like, oh, give me a meal plan. Like, look, I've tried that. I've tried that for years in college. It does not work because unless you get down to the nitty gritty of understanding, like, what does this person know? What do they like? What do they not like? What is their schedule like? What are they actually looking to do and improve? You know, where are these opportunities for them to actually eat? You know, who's cooking? Are they are right. they purchasing? It? Are they buying it from outside? Is it DoorDash? Is it Uber Eats now? Which they can, anybody and everybody can get McDonald's delivered to them mm -hmm. to their door. Um, that's the most important thing. You know, and the principles are all the same, whether it's an athlete or non-athlete. Now you get into goals. We use their their current health status. If you've got some anthropometric goals, if we've got body composition, health. That's going to drive what the actual recommendations are. Uh, but everybody has some form of, yeah, I want to gain muscle mass. I want to lose body fat. I'm good where I'm at. I have an injury history. Uh, these are my workloads. This is what I have to be prepared and ready for. So there's not one thing that's going to be applicable for everybody. So what Tom Brady does works for Tom Brady, but that's not going to work for LeBron James. It's not going to work for what Michael Phelps does. It's not going to work for Saquon Barkley, Odell Beckham. It's It has to be very individualized because, again, you have – different genetic backgrounds, you have different epigenetics and you throw in schedule and preferences all in there too. Mm -hmm. So getting 
getting the athletes and getting the clients to understand that is really, really important. It's not, oh, the flavor of the week or the month of the past year is everything's either plant-based or it's carnivore or it's keto. I'm like those things have kind of been around for a long time and they do have efficacy with certain groups. But overall, I think you do have some general guidelines that most people can follow, whether you're an athlete or non-athlete, based on the studies that are very applicable to everybody. It's just you have to I always start with the assessment. Yeah. So it depends. It does. Yeah, well, I know. Everybody. everybody <laughs> says, it depends. Well, and I, I totally get that. I also wonder, too, like, are there kind of general principles behind that a little bit. Like if somebody's putting on wanting to put on mass or wanting muscle mass specifically, are there some overall macro rules that might help govern that as compared to maybe somebody who's trying to reduce um, overall fat percentage or something like that? Yeah. With, with mass, it's very much so you understand, you know, when are they going to bed? When are they waking up? When are they training? And then we start plugging in, like ideally we'd want a pre-training feeding, higher in protein, a good amount of protein prior to 10 to 12 a.m. and not just doing like, oh, I intermittent fast till 12 and I then only eat until 8 and I get my workout done at, you know, uh, 2 p.m. And it's like you've missed a big chunk of the window. And even the studies now are showing to prove that if you go from intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding, uh, it's not as advantageous for putting on muscle mass and potentially, and that doesn't mean people can't do it. But for most athletes with high energy needs or people with crazy schedules, like ideally you just blanket bookend the training sessions, um, make sure that they're eating at least upwards of 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of protein. So, you know, the rule of thumb, it's 0.8 to one gram per pound body weight. Um, now I kind of post about this too. So it's not five, six, seven feedings. It's 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 total protein intake over 24 hours being in that caloric surplus. So it doesn't have to be an insane surplus. It just has to be equivalent to, you know, 10 to 25% above what their their maintenance needs are. So it could be, you know, four or five feedings spread out throughout the entire day. A pre-bed feeding is great. There's good research to show that, you know, 30 to 40 plus grams of high quality protein before bed is positive in ensuring muscle protein synthesis at night and leaning athletes and clients towards putting on good lean mass. And obviously if somebody's trying to lose body fat and lean out, then the recommendations change, but mm -hmm. the principles behind it are generally somewhat the same. Yeah. So Which if you, if you're yeah. average and you're just like a normal person, like Michael Chapman here, and he Calling wants to average? get, no, you're incredibly extraordinary, <laughs> sir. Sorry. <laughs> so just wanting to get stronger, you know, there are people out there who just go to the gym. They want to get stronger. So you're saying if you want to build muscle mass, you increase your protein intake. You're in a, calor a caloric abundance. What are some of the training pitfalls that people don't think about when they're trying to put on mass? Yeah. And it, it's not just about nutrition. Like you can eat all the protein until, you know, the cows come home, so to speak. But if you don't have a stimulus to drive muscular change, you're not going to gain any muscle. And that stimulus is resistance training. Okay. So what, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to end up being a meathead that goes to the gym that has to power lift or body build. It could be body weight training because that's resistance training. It could be bands. It could be machines. It could be dumbbells. It could be kettlebells. It could be free weights. But the goal is to progress. So you have to stress the muscle near, close to failure, not like super failure, beat yourself up. Minimum of at least two resistance training sessions per week, hitting most of the major muscle groups now. The amount of sets and reps you do, that does depend. Are you doing body weight? Are you doing actual resistance training with dumbbells and, and barbells and the like? Um, again, that has to drive the adaptation. And the nutrition around it helps build 
the muscle back up, but you also have to have periods of rest and recovery. So if we're here, we stress ourselves. This is just the general adaptation syndrome. We have a good workout. Yeah, we're stressed. We're not doing great, but hey, I slept well. I ate really well, build myself back up. I'm going to train a different set of muscle groups. Uh, over time, your new baseline starts shifting because I'm increasing weight every successive week. I am being consistent about it. Um, I'm managing my stress. I'm sleeping really well. I'm hydrating, all that good stuff. Maybe I'm supplementing with something that's researched back, like, you know, creatine. Uh, that has very positive uh, effects with body composition. So there aren't a ton of things, but again, there are things that you want to check the boxes of. And, you know, you don't have to restrict carbohydrates. Like, yeah, if you do end up eating carbohydrates around training, call it quality ones, you do feel more energized. You do have more energy to push yourself harder during training. That's why all these athletes, all these, you know, uh, CrossFitters, all these bodybuilders, they don't skimp on their carbs <laughs> because they know for a fact um, they can't perform without it. Now, does that mean everybody has to slam a ton? No, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I think in this day and age, they easily get demonized and people think, oh, I want to put on muscle. It's all about protein. I'm like, that's a combination of everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That makes sense. This balanced approach. Well, and you mentioned creatine too. Uh, and I'm just wondering from a nutritional component, are there certain things that are go-tos for you, uh, maybe aside from creatine or other like, if you're an elite athlete, you are going to be depleted of this particular nutrient and you have to, in all circumstances, you know, take more of this than the average individual. Yeah, from from the testing I've done, from everything that I've seen, you know, creatine is definitely something I recommend for all different types of athletes, males and females, uh, even for endurance athletes too. So it's not just your bodybuilding bro supplement. It we get it in food. We have a normal breakdown of about two to three grams, depending on the size of an average individual, independent of training. So you think about a 300, 350 pound football player. I mean, their normal breakdown and buildup is going to be significantly greater than that. Mm -hmm. Um, aside from creatine, again, if you're, if you're doing testing, vitamin D, again, a, a big one, mm -hmm. if it's difficult for an athlete to, or a person to be outdoors, if they work all day inside, or if they're a basketball player who's darker skin, they're going to be inside all day. Mm -hmm. You're not going to see outdoors. It's going to be difficult to say, just tell them, Oh, Hey, get more sun. <laughs> if, you know, if they live in the Northern climates, they're like, what are you talking? I can't be outdoors. <laughs> so yeah, you know, supplementing with vitamin D definitely has its purposes. I do love fish oil too, EPA and DHA. Again, looking at blood data from too many athletes, the 63 ratio, 93% index, most are very low. Like mm -hmm. that 63 ratio can be like somewhere upwards of like 30 to one. Wow. That is crazy pill inflammatory wow. where, yes. and, and again, individual genetics will dictate how quickly they metabolize some of these omega fatty acids. So European descendants, African-American descendants, they are hyper metabolizers of omega fatty acids. So if they're not getting very many threes and they're getting sixes and nines, like that's not great. Mm-hmm. So and that 3% index for a lot of them, it's, you know, 1%, 2%. I'm like, we need to get you to eight or above yes. and bring that three down, hopefully to four to one and potentially even lower than that. So big fan of fish oil for a variety of reasons. Um, probiotics to an extent, again, if, if an athlete has a very diverse diet, they can get it from fermented foods and, and dairy products, which is great, but not a lot of athletes are branching out and getting those products. And there's a great position stand sent forth by the International Society of Sports Nutrition about probiotic supplementation in athletes. Very good. Um, magnesium, that mm. that's a big one. So looking at RBC magnesium levels for a lot of athletes, 
they're just not where they need to be. And magnesium is so important. It's an, it's an essential micronutrient involved in hundreds of reactions in the body. And athletes that are just super stressed all the time, just the positive effect on the central nervous system that it has, and even with its implications in sleep, um, I highly recommend that. And last one could be either like glycine or collagen mm -hmm. with more research coming out about both of those. Um, knowing how people are calling like glycine is kind of difficult to get, even if you have a, a very good diet, just because it's found in more of like the gelatinous, the nose, the tail type products. And most athletes are not going full on crazy carnivore, mm -hmm. and eating, you know, the very yeah. interesting parts of the bodies all the time, just because that's just not what they want to do, which is okay. Right. It's not what I do either. That's why I supplement with both of them. <laughs> Um, but again, more research coming out on collagen peptides. Collagen is one of the most abundant uh, proteins in the body. It's structural tissue. And athletes during intense training, especially if they're going through high workloads, uh, collision type sports, we see that there is a high amount of like connective tissue breakdown and glycine in the blood. And we constantly have to be able to provide that for them to have the raw materials necessary to build themselves back up. Yeah. Okay. It it's official. Pratik Patel is hired as your health and conditioning coach, Michael. Oh, I think we should be here. He should be on this <laughs> podcast because I have like another zillion <laughs> questions to ask. Um, one of them, honestly, was the branched-chain amino acids. We, you hear a lot that being used, and we're hearing more and more about, yo, you've got to have your leucine amount to get your anabolic trigger and that sort of thing. Do you find that to be part of the regimen, or are they getting enough protein anyway that it's really kind of moot? Again, it depends on what these athlete habits are. Some do struggle with getting the amount of protein they want at specific times. So the branched chain amino acids are important, but it's actually about the full complement of all nine. So what the study shows, obviously you do need that leucine trigger at least like 2.5 to 2.7 grams, but by itself, it is not as effective as stimulating muscle protein synthesis because if you have all nine essential amino acids, that means you have the three BCAs. Yeah. And having that is ideal and much more beneficial than just having the three in isolation alone. And it doesn't matter if it actually comes from an animal source or plant-based source, if you can get the amounts for the essential amino acid. Now, I'm always going to be an advocate of whole food sources. There's great, great products for meat and seafood and all that. You know, if you want to be vegetarian, and vegan, that's cool. It's not my job to change your mind. But saying that you can't have that is is wrong. But saying that you can't get it from plant-based sources is wrong too, because they've looked at studies like potato protein, corn protein. And obviously, you're probably going to have to consume a lot more to get the appropriate amounts of each individual essential amino acid. But it does have positive effects of being able to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. If you're getting at least 1.6 grams per kg of protein from plant-based sources, uh, you get similar effects of if you had a, a an omnivorous diet, you know, and you were eating meat and getting animal-based sources too. So I think it's good for people to know that. Uh, but there are a ton of other benefits that you're going to get from animal products, too. I love it. I got another one. Okay, and this is just for personal <sighs> curiosity. So we do a lot of um, microbiome testing, GI testing, stool testing here at Genova Diagnostics, and you mentioned probiotics. So I have always wondered what the conversation, how it goes down with an athlete and, and somebody on their staff who is trying to talk to them about the importance of maybe a stool test and why they might want to do that. Yeah, it's never the easiest thing just because it's the test that is the most awkward that right. they're not asked to do. Like they've they've been used to giving urine samples left, mm -hmm. right, front, and center. Sure. They give blood, but no one's really coming up to me like, "Hey, we're gonna try to just 
check, you know, if you have any dysbiosis, what your your quote unquote gut, gut health status is, you're gonna have to poop in this bag or right. in this, you right. know, flexion. Right. Sure. And again, I think more athletes now are very aware. They hear, I don't want to call it a buzzword, but they they hear about gut health. They know about probiotics, prebiotics, postbiotic, you know, all that stuff. And they're curious about it. And if if you can frame it in a way to educate them to say, hey, I think this is something that's going to be very insightful. We're going to learn a lot about why you might be having issues because there are a lot of athletes that have major digestive issues. Mm -hmm. They like to talk about bubble guts a lot just because they are eating and taking things that aren't specific for them or they have a lactose or severe dairy allergy and the products that they've been giving since given to them since they were in college are very milk based. And again, nothing wrong. I think milk and dairy is fantastic, but it's not for everybody in specific um, types are higher quality than others too. So a lot of athletes go through their day just going to the bathroom way more than they should. Mm. And it's normal to them. And it's like, hey, this might be what you're used to, but it's not normal. It's not healthy. We can get to the root cause of the issue if we can get a little bit of testing done and see what's going on so I can push you in the right direction to relieve these issues because I don't want you feeling like this. You don't want to feel like this. So I think being able to frame it that way and it's it's all about how you package it and communicate it to them. Yeah. It, yeah. And I imagine if they can see, you know, even a one percent increase in their output, then they're sort of on board in general. But I was going to yeah. say, there's a lot of research. There's tons of research now being done about the microbiome. And I think as that becomes more prevalent, to your point, Michael, they'll see like, oh, this give me that extra 1%. So as that research emerges, I think they'll be a little bit more open to discussing mm -hmm. that. But Pratik, I mean, it's clear you have worked with lots of really famous athletes. It's do you, amazing. Do you also work with normal Joe, normal everyday guy? And how? I do, I do. How do people you know, get in touch with you? How do how do we sign up? How does Michael sign up to work? I, know, I mean, I wouldn't call it normal. I was this, the drumline captain, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people can reach out to me on my social media. It's at Pratik X Patel. So I try to be as active on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as possible. And I think, again, the goal is, you know, I've had a very blessed career in fortunate ability to work in a variety of different settings and learn a lot, not just about working with athletes and, and the health and performance and all these different tests and how you can implement it, but just myself too. So I, I've been a case study as well. Uh, so, you know, my main goal is to be able to provide these types of services to people that, you know, have, have struggled with their, their health and performance, who don't know where to turn to, who want something that speaks specifically to them that's sustainable. Yeah. And realistic, you know, without having to spend eight hours under the sun and take the most random supplements and be in a cold tub, you know, every morning for two hours, you know, that's not realistic for a lot of people. I love that. Yeah. Well, we're going to link to some of your social media, uh, your social media handles in the show notes. And I'm just going to throw this out there that we should have a recurrent Pratik Patel I, episode every I'm, once in a while. Like, this is incredible. Questions. No, I mean, it's just incredible. We should have a recurrent, yeah. a recurrent um residency here but <laughs> we can't thank you enough for being here but Pratik before we let you go we do have one last question that I'm going to kick to Michael Chapman we have a ridiculous question called the fireball that the we fireball. ask everyone at the end of interval and it has nothing to do with anything that we just talked about it's, it's just stupid it's a just stupid to, question I don't even know why we do it anymore <laughs> to make my you question, feel uncomfortable here's my question for you what, in the, what is the best breakfast cereal out there oh come on this is easy oh you know I love cereal I don't eat as much as I used to when I was a kid uh huh so the the one I loved is discontinued. And I don't know if 
heard of it. It's called Sprinkle Spangle. What? Oh, I don't know this. I have to look this up. What? what? This, describe this magical breakfast. It so sounds I, really I know the jingle. It's called it's Sprinkle Spangle. <laughs> it's spangled every angle with sprinkles. <laughs> it was the tastiest thing in the world to me. And I, I don't think my parents ever bought it. I always go to a friend's house to eat it. Of course. And I would just eat bowls of it. Oh, no. uh, outside of that, I, you can't go wrong with you know, like your cinnamon toast crumbs. That's what I was gonna butter. say. Yeah. Cinnamon toast. That's the that's the winner. But yeah. See, <laughs> sprinkle, we've got to get that. Out. We've missed Got out. a YouTube sprinkle spangle. No, I get Somebody, this. Somebody's making it. Although, or somebody should get on it. <laughs> How amazing! Well, Pratik Patel, again, thank you so much for spending your time and all yeah. of your expertise, and hopefully, you'll agree to come on again real soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Man, I feel like that was so exciting, so incredible. I uh, feel like we just brushed with greatness, you know what I mean? <laughs> Talk about a wealth of information. Think about that, like oh, years of working with these elite athletes, what he's seen and and what he's been able to do with them. Seriously. Amazing. Yeah, and and to be able to see people of that caliber and uh, and understand a like what they need and in fact, as he said so well, they're they're just different. Their their health needs are totally different. The they're overall wellness factor is totally different and different from how we even think they are. Um, it's just, there's it's just like a different world. It's fascinating to me, but I love that he's translating now into normal everyday folks and helping them out. So there's a chance for you, Michael Chapman. There's no chance for me, Patty. I I'm mean, saying. I hung up the snare drum a long time ago. <laughs> Next time on the lab report, we're going to talk to Dr. Sheila Dean. She's back by popular demand. Friend of the show. Why explain something yourself when you have somebody much smarter and much more eloquent? Right. Eloquent? Case in point. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. So I showed excellent restraint. I listened to the New York Giants for that whole episode and didn't even bring up the eels. (laughs) Not on air. No. (laughs) It was the first thing you brought up when you got on the line, though. But, you know, he's a Chiefs fan, so I'm I'm okay with that. (laughs) I'm accepting this. Yeah, you found safe ground in the fact that you're... Different con- conferences separated by That's primary. Right. Uh, it's funny. I, like I wonder how often he gets that. Because I'm not gonna lie. I saw in his bio he worked with Michigan State too, and like there was a certain part of me that was like, you know, I went to IU. Listen, like why would I, why why would he care about that in any sort of regard? Be sports like sports fandom is so polarizing. It's so strange. I know. <laughs>